Welcome to We The Podcast. This week on We The Podcast, we're having a frank conversation about how America treats the poor. The Pope recently said, each individual Christian in every community is called upon for the liberation and promotion of the poor and for enabling them to be fully part of society. To live charitably means not looking out for your own interests, but carrying the burdens of the weakest and the poorest among us. Caring for the poor isn't just a religious principle, it is a long-held American value. In 1903, a sonnet by Emma Lazarus was engraved on the inside of the Statue of Liberty. It reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That's Emma Lazarus. Unfortunately, we are a long way off from living up to our history and the Pope's vision for a society that enables the poor to be equal members of society. In fact, we have a system that actively demonizes the poor and a government that profits from them. Over a million Americans live on less than $2 a day. 22% of children live in poverty in the United States and 15% of all Americans are poor. Now you might be thinking, if those people would just work, they could lift themselves out of poverty and be okay. You'd be wrong. Most of them are working. Instead of focusing on how the system has failed the working poor, we blame the poor and stigmatize them. We argue that they are poor because of bad choices, when in many cases, there was never a choice at all. To talk about how this feels, I called my friend Linda Torado, author of Hand to Mouth, Living Bootstrap in America. Linda is a remarkable person. A few years ago, she wrote a blog post about what it's like to be poor, and Linda's knack for telling it like it is landed her a book deal, which I was very happy to read. I recommend Hand to Mouth. I asked Linda about why so many Americans believe the poor are lazy. If you can't blame the poor for their own poverty, then you have to look at the system that is creating so much poverty, don't you? Yeah, you do. And then you have to think. And, and it turns out the smartest people in the room are largely the ones that hate thinking the most. So we don't like to do that. Like you, you shatter people's self-perception when you stand up as somebody who is working class or poor, living in poverty or homeless and say, actually, I'm just as smart as you are. Mm -hmm. Would you like to prove it? Because you and I could have a chat and I will win because I have the lived experience that you don't. Mm. And, and experience is a great teacher. But to look at somebody who's worked their ass off, put themselves through school and grad school and a master's program and did unpaid internships and ate shit for the first four years of their career, and sure, they had family help, and sure, they had all the luck in the world, but they worked really hard. And to have somebody look at them and go, actually, I've worked just as hard as you have. Mm -hmm. Your success is not down to your merit. It's down to luck and mm -hmm. then merit. Linda has lived the experience to know what it's like to work harder than most, but have little to show for it because the deck is stacked against you. 
if a middle class person wanted to know what it was like to work at Burger King and Wendy's both, um, they just need to not sleep tonight and then also not sleep tomorrow. And then on the third day, function and tell Mm. me how well they do. And that's what it's like every day. So when you take those pressures away and you go, hey, we're going to give you reasonable hours. We're going to give you a reasonable shot at being a whole human being instead of some kind of freaking automaton that that parrots corporate words at customers that are really angry about being there to begin with. um, It it turns out we're all capable of amazing things um, because suddenly we have all of these resources. Like People, Mm. I think, frequently underestimate the amount of skill and talent that it takes to survive in in the service economy um you have to be able to calculate compound interest on a dime you Mm. have to know if you walk into a walmart which foods and which products are taxed at which rate because if you have twenty dollars you can't just go oh it's about that you're going to come up to the register it's going to be 2003 and you've got to decide what to put back and that's Mm. hugely embarrassing so when you go to the store you are keeping track of of six or seven different shifting data points and calculating all of that in your head while you're exhausted after you're off work when you're rushed when you've got your kids with you dude we're smarter than most people I know that have financial advisors mm-hmm. because we don't outsource our financial advisement. And and so when you've got that, when you can't outsource anything, when you have to do everything yourself to have somebody say, well, you're completely incapable. Well, dude, how many people do you have on staff? Right. <laughs> how many people does it take to run your life? Because I just got me. It is hard to be poor, but some don't agree. There's a pervasive idea that those who use safety net programs are comfortable and willing to become dependent. I asked Linda about a Republican colleague, Representative Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, who recently said, quote, we don't want to turn the safety net into a hammock that lulls the able-bodied people to lives of dependency and complacency that drains them of their will and their incentive to make the most of their lives. I think that Paul Ryan is is a, a very nice man. I've spoken to him. Um, I think that he is desperately trying to actually help, and I think that he's got... I am trying to be politic here. Um, I think that he's got some interesting friggin' ideas about how the world works. Look, anybody who who is going to actually make public policy based on like one woman who thinks that selfishness is an actual virtue and then he's going to preach and compassion right. at me no honey that is not how that works but I actually took that quote on in the book accidentally. It was meant to be a parenthetical joke to my editors, and then they left it in. It's not friggin' comfortable. It is not friggin' comfortable. And if you are stupid enough to, to look at the data, much less the millions of people who are talking to you, and this is a man in a position of power. This is a man who has people call his office all day, every day, and say, I can't get my VA care. I can't get my disability. I can't get through this bureaucracy, these benefits that I have earned, that I have paid into. That is not lazy. And if you can hold that position with that many people telling you that frequently that it's not that simple and you don't understand that, you've got no business making public policy at all as far as I'm concerned. As heartrending as it is to see a mother miss her 
child's birthday so that she can pay for the cake at the party. And you hear stories like that all of the time, and then you're going to tell me about a friggin' hammock? The problem is attitudes like Representative Paul Ryan's often become policy, but the negative attitude doesn't go both ways. The Paul Ryan's of the world aren't worried about subsidies that the wealthy receive creating complacency within the economic elite. To determine why politicians use shame to stigmatize the poor, I talked to Professor Robert Walker at Oxford University in England. Professor Walker has studied poverty and welfare policy for the last 40 years, and he recently wrote a book called The Shame of Poverty. This is what he said about shaming the poor. We expect people to feel shame. But we, we want in many ways uh, them to feel shame because we feel that by ripping them with shame, they'll pull their socks up, that they'll, they'll get off the backside, they will, they will go to work, they will do what other people in society does. And, and that's what's expected of them. Of course, that analysis, that set of expectations doesn't match with the first point that most of the poverty that we experience in our societies is largely structural, that people can't actually do a great deal about it. And the second component is this presumption that they aren't, that people who are experiencing poverty are essentially lazy, feckless, they lack willpower, um, and therefore, in a sense, they're blamed for their circumstances. And this process of expecting somebody to feel shame is a way of if you like, trying to impose social control over people. But it's a social control which is ultimately futile because it expects people to have the tools and the roots out of poverty, which they actually, in large numbers, haven't actually got. Despite the lack of resources and the stigma against them, Professor Walker's research shows that the poor do a pretty good job of surviving. They can make it stretch, make it last. The large majority of people who are living in poverty are doing a magnificent job in order to survive. They know their nutritional requirements and how best to maximize those with the limited amount of resources that they've got. If they're not working, they're typically working damned hard to get a job. Um, they are... They are human beings, which we often forget, and the same incentives that make us want to do the best for ourselves and for our loved ones and our community apply equally to people who are poor as well as people who are not poor. So if whipping the poor with shame doesn't work and is harmful, why do we keep doing it? To answer that question, I turn to Professor Joe Sauce. Professor Sauce is a friend of mine from the University of Minnesota and is the Cowles Chair for the study of public service at the University of Minnesota. Well, if we look back uh, a long time, you say they endured. If we look back to the early 1800s in England, they developed a doctrine called the Doctrine of Less Eligibility. And what that meant was that, was that you had to have an obligation to uh, provide aid to the poor, those who were in need. But the Doctrine of Less Eligibility said that aid always needed to be provided in a way that it would not be really or apparently better than the very worst, meanest job available in society. In other words, they didn't want to provide a disincentive to work. They, they wanted to keep the pressure on. And to this day, 
we have continued, and it's moved in waves in one direction or another. Welfare rights pushed this back a little bit, but then it expanded again. But we have always returned to this idea that, yeah, we shouldn't do away with these programs that help the poor, but we should make it so that only the people who really need it are going to apply, those who are most desperate. And the way we do that is by stigmatizing the programs. And so when these programs create these um, really denigrating, terrible, stigmatizing uh, processes and procedures, when they force you to make every aspect of your life open to government scrutiny in a country that says that it doesn't like big government, right? right. Uh, when it forces you to do all these things, what happens is that people who are eligible income-wise, they just don't apply. They would do anything before um, they would sink to that level mm -hmm. in their own mind and in the minds of those around them. And so in a very real sense, it's almost like contracting the program. Professor Sass told me that stigmatizing the poor and safety net programs is also politically popular. Getting tough with the poor and particularly with poor minorities, has been a bipartisan politics. Democrats and Republicans have both been involved. But this politics plays out very diff differently for the two. Uh, it began much more with the Republicans from Barry Goldwater in 1964 through the Southern strategy of Richard Nixon uh, into the welfare queen and the war on drugs of the Reagan era. Um, this sort of these myths of the underclass and their pathology and the need to get tough turned out to be, on one side, the perfect wedge issue for peeling off uh, white voters who are disaffected with the Democratic Party after the Democratic Party, in a sense, gave in to civil rights demands uh, and signed on to that. But on the other side, what people don't realize is it was also the perfect unifying issue um, for the Republican Party that was building its own coalition. So when politicians shame the poor, they do it because it gets votes. But that isn't the end of the story. It also prevents the poor from voting themselves. One of the things that we've found over time is that actually um, a, a pretty significant contributor to uh, people's likelihood of voting and turning out is actually the quality of experiences they've had with government. Hmm. And it turns out that people who uh, routinely get stopped and frisked and have negative experiences with the criminal justice system, and these are people who are not uh, people who've been convicted of crimes, these are people who live in certain communities, particularly poor communities of color, mm -hmm. uh, that those people tend to withdraw from engaging government, seeing government more as an authority over them that's to be avoided, if anything. And in my own studies uh, with welfare recipients and people going through welfare programs, what I've found is that when they're put into these programs that are, have all these rules that force their caseworkers to monitor everything they do with their lives and punish them through sanctions that throw them off the program and all these things, that they come to see themselves as, as, in a sense, the objects of government power instead of the participants in a democratic process. And what happens is that even when they're deeply in need, they tend not to speak up nearly as much. And I say nearly as much because I compared them to people who are in programs, uh, for example, programs for people with disabilities who uh, were also receiving government benefits, but weren't put under those stigmatizing rules and all that stuff. And those people did speak up, right? Even when they had pretty similar characteristics. So let's recap. Research shows that stigmatizing the poor works really well for certain politicians. 
It allows them to build cohesion among like-minded voters and creates a distrust among the poor that inhibits them from engaging in the political process. But that still isn't the end of the story. Shaming the poor also allows corporate interests to profit off of the poor. Florida's law requiring welfare recipients to undergo drug testing before getting benefits is a prime example. Before signing a law requiring drug tests for welfare recipients, Florida Governor Rick Scott transferred $62 million worth of shares in Solantic Corporation to his wife. Solantic Corporation was then hired to administer the drug tests. So look, folks, the governor mandates drug tests. He gives his wife $62 million worth of shares in his drug testing company and then hires his wife's company to administer the drug tests. Thankfully, federal courts ruled Florida's policy unconstitutional but not before the taxpayers footed the bill for millions of dollars in drug testing to find, wait for it, three people tested positive. Three. The silver lining of these unconstitutional and morally bankrupt policies is that we learned the poor are not doing what society accuses them of. The poor aren't sitting around on drugs, eating lobster dinners, using the welfare system. In fact, studies show that rampant welfare fraud is a complete myth. Um, the myth of welfare fraud works a lot like the myth of voter fraud, right? Uh, you don't have to really have a lot of voter fraud, which we don't, right. uh, in order to go out and, and pass all sorts of procedures um, that actually restrict people's access to voting and ability to exercise their rights to vote. In the same sort of way, you don't have to have a whole lot of actual welfare fraud to go out and produce all kinds of new procedures to quote-unquote clean up the program that actually wind up making sure that people who are in need don't, don't get the benefits they need. This is troubling, especially because studies show that when the poor vote, policies are more equitable and shared prosperity is a core American value. So what is the answer? How can we make the system better? First, we have to stop shaming those in poverty. It is contrary to our values. It's wrong, and it doesn't achieve any good. Next, we have to make it easier to vote so that the poor can have a voice in public policy. We have to restore the trust in government for those we've spent our entire history marginalizing demonizing and shaming. And lastly, we have to honor our own values. That means we have to stop stigmatizing good programs that actually help the poor, and we have to trust our neighbors. Here's Professor Sass on the power of dignity. When we look at what happens to people when they go into these different programs that are designed in these different ways, um, what we find is that people who uh, are put into programs uh, that respect their personal liberties, uh, that don't invade their privacy, that don't th subject them to these stigmatizing uh, rules, et cetera, that those programs actually have no negative effect at all, or they have a positive effect, right? So we know that people who, um, who experience the GI Bill, even aside from the educational benefits they got, the positive experience they had of government actually raised 
um, their participation levels, right? In all sorts of community engagement, political engagement. We know that people who are in Social Security old age programs for the elderly, that generally that has had an effect on raising the political participation uh, of those who participate. And of course, the elderly were some of the most poor and marginalized people in American society before that program, right? So we know how to do this stuff. Um, it's that we don't. And the reason that we don't is because um, we do not trust the poor, we assume the worst about the poor, and we believe that uh, the poor need to, that we need to design programs to make sure that the poor behave um, and that the poor take the jobs that are available at the bottom. Shame is powerful, but freedom, dignity, and inclusion are more powerful. The answer is pretty simple. We have to treat people the way we'd want to be treated. It's my hope that the Pope's visit inspires us to be advocates for those struggling to make it instead of making life harder for them. This is Keith Ellison with the podcast. See you next time. We're going to be all right. <laughs>